Well, friends, uh, we are wrapping up this book of Daniel, and we are probably further than most of us have ever gone in this book. We usually stop at the narratives, and now we're in the crazy visions, and, and we're actually, we've pretty much made it through. It's kind of exciting, exciting for me. I was holding my breath as I was studying this book. Um, but as we uh, jump into it, Daniel chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open in them to Daniel chapter 12. Uh, and, and this week, you know, we ended last week with History Has Lost Its Mind. That was the, at least the title uh, of what we were talking about there. And, uh, you know, as I started off this week, it, it felt like that uh, sermon title really did hold true, right? It was just news after news, right, uh, of, of hard or challenging or crazy, right? You had the situation in Bucks County. I know that impacted even some people here where a mother took the life of her 13 and 9-year-old child, right? It was just absolutely horrible. We've got the continued saga going on in Ukraine and the horror that is there. We have this leaked brief from the Supreme Court that has set, uh, you know, just basically set the world on fire on every end of things. And like we needed anything else to fight about on social media, uh, we have it. Yay. Um, uh, one of my best friends, uh, he texted me early this week and said, pray for me. My company of 18 years is getting ready to lay me off on Friday. Right. And so entering into it with him. Um, another friend said, hey, I'm starting my treatment for this disease. And so would you pray for me with this? And, and then on top of that, and this is so frivolous, but uh, we had a busted appliance that was, um, you know, we'll call it poorly delivered. And, uh, and we're at war with that company now trying to get that fixed. And then uh, on top of all of that, uh, on Wednesday morning, I started struggling with a situation that I helped create, right? And it was a little bit of a mess. And, and I just woke up Thursday morning and, and I was just like, I'm just going to go right back to sleep. I don't, I don't want to go out there and have anything else happen. I'm going to throw my phone in a lake and just kind of ignore the world, right? That's what I wanted to do on Thursday morning. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience. If you've ever had that experience after a week like that, you're just like, no, nah, we're good. We're good. I'm going to go back to sleep, right? Maybe you haven't. I don't know. I hope you never do if you haven't. But, but, but the reality is, is and when we're, when we're faced with the, the kind of the bad news of history like we looked at last week, we just grow weary, don't we? We want to give up. In fact, as I'm even talking about this, there's this reality that I think I've used this in a sermon probably four weeks ago. Same intro. I know y'all don't remember that, but you know, it, I did. Um, so, so here's this reality. And the, way, the reason I start like this is because um, Daniel, right? We, we're, we're still talking about Daniel. And here he is. He is an elderly man. He has outlasted Babylon, right? He has outlasted tyrant after tyrant after tyrant. Dude got thrown into the lion's den, right? And he's still hanging out there in Babylon. And I'm sure right before he got this three-part vision that we've been walking through, he was probably dreaming of like a condo in Florida. He's like, I'm just, I'm going to retire. It's going to be great, right? But then here he is getting more bad news, right? And so what's interesting is the very last verse of this entire book is this. And that, spoiler alert, this is how the whole book ends. Here's what he says. God says to Daniel, go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Go your way till the end. Persevere, Daniel, and there's hope for you in the end. And so how do we get from where we are in the middle of this history has lost its mind vision to this? Well, the question, the key question that this whole section, chapter 12, wrestles with is, will the people of God endure when evil is at its worst? 
when the news is at its worst, when the evil is at its worst. Remember, we left off last week with this Antichrist figure, with this future event happening, not just in the Old Testament people of God, but in the New Testament people of God, of this Antichrist who's going to persecute the church worse than we've ever experienced. And so again, the question is, will the people of God endure when evil is at its worst? You know, the big idea here as we conclude is that last verse. Go on to the end because your future is settled. So how do we get there? Well, Daniel 12, 1 to 4. Uh, follow along with me as we read this first section. It says this. At that time, uh, I'm sorry. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen uh, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found in the written, uh, written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn uh, many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Let me pray for us as we dive in here. Well, Lord, um, I pray that one last time here in this book of Daniel, that you would give us a mind and a heart of understanding your word, of understanding what it means for us, of understanding the gospel and how it applies. And, And Lord, Uh, This being your Old Testament handbook for the suffering people of God, I pray that you would teach us how to suffer well as a result of this. And so, Lord, would you be near to those who are already suffering? Would you tune our hearts to hear from your Spirit? And I pray uh, that your Spirit would uh, guide my words as I speak this morning. And so, Lord, change us as a result of hearing from you, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so... Here's where we're headed. And and this first main point isn't really a main point. It's a sentence followed by four bullet points. But here you go. This is essentially summing up verses 1 to 4. When God's people face the worst trouble, they will be four things. Helped, known, glorified, and guaranteed. When God's people face the worst trouble, they will be helped, known, glorified, and guaranteed. All right, so here's the link up. Remember, we we talked about how this is a continuation of the previous vision. It ended with this Antichrist there, uh, and it starts off in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, and then it goes on. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation, Israel, until that time. And so he's essentially linking to what was just told to him in the vision and said, Hey, (laughs) there is a time of trouble that is to come that has never been seen before. And in light of that, he moves to encourage Daniel and encourage God's people who would follow to persevere. So here's the first item. When God's people face the worst trouble, they will be helped. They will be helped. You see in verse 1, at that time shall arise arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. All right, so Michael is is the archangel that we would read about if you fast forward to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, He's out there battling the dragon. And and really, the idea of what Michael's doing here, he's in charge of God's people, meaning he is this angelic being who is literally right now helping God's people as there is a spiritual battle going on. I know for some of y'all who you're coming in here and this might be your first week, you'll be like, this is the trippy part of this Christianity thing. Like, talking about angelic realms and a battle, but, but friends... 
God's word holds before us time and time again that there are spiritual realities that we do not see that's happening right now, right in our midst. And in the midst of that battle, it says there is this helper here in Michael, this angelic being. Now, how that works in real time right now, I just don't know. But at the very least, God is pointing us to he is currently offering help. Now, here's another area where we see him offering spiritual help in a time where God's people will face persecution. You have Jesus talking to his disciples who Jesus knows they're going to be brought before the enemies of God and accused, right, and persecuted. And here's what Jesus says to them in Luke 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Now, what do you think he goes on to say? Because you have five note cards with a ready defense so you can just rifle through them and get them, right? Or a three-point outline, right? Because that's a good sermon number of outlines, three, uh, that you should have. Is that why they shouldn't be anxious? Let's see. What's for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Huh. There's help in that moment of trouble. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been kind of called to the carpet on your faith and then something came out of your mouth? You're like, well, I don't know where that came from. Like, I, I didn't practice it. I didn't rehearse it. But, but I was able to just say something that I didn't even know was in there, right? We've experienced that picture of when God's people face their worst trouble, they will be helped. All right. Now, I don't know. Anybody ever seen that movie Coco? It's a Pixar movie. Uh, it's kind of a creepy Pixar movie. Uh, it's about the, it's the Day of the Dead, the Dia de los Muertos, where um, basically uh, this culture uh, essentially um, sets up remembrances of loved ones who have passed away. And, and they do that because in the afterlife, if they're forgotten, they kind of evaporate from the afterlife as well. Anybody seen that? It's like that Pixar movie, maybe not everybody's watched, not in Can- Encanto or whatever that. I don't know. I don't have young kids anymore. I, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Just ignore me. But but I did watch Coco. And there is this sad scene where uh, the main character is kind of in this weird afterlifey place. And, and there's this person who is being forgotten by their relatives. And they're just beginning to fade away and evaporate. And, and they do. And it's awful. Like I'm reading it going, oh, right? Like th- this is, I don't like this Pixar movie. But anyway, um, one of uh, my friends, I heard him speak at a conference. Uh, his name's Mike Emlett. He says this, he says, you know, that picture is this illustration of really the human desire of to be known. To be known equals to be alive to us many times. And sometimes we feel just simply forgotten. I think that's why Psalm 13, this psalm of lament, starts off with, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And I would just say this, our temptation when we face suffering is to default to God. You don't know me. You don't, you're not paying attention to me. You don't even, you're not even around anymore. Our temptation is to think that we have been forgotten. Well, friends, this passage actually tells us something different. Again, in verse 1, when God's people face the worst trouble, it says, you will still be known. It says, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And so it's saying, even in the midst of this struggle, uh, if we are, if we belong to God, if we are followers of Christ, no matter what level of suffering we have, we are not forgotten. We are remembered. And we see that refrain time and time again in the Psalms. We see it in Isaiah 43. When you, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. Isaiah 41, I'm holding your hand as you go through trouble. Psalm 139, I knit you together in your mother's womb. Wherever you go, going, coming up and down, I'm with you. 
I haven't forgotten you. Your name is written in my book. Even in Luke 2, uh, 10, 20, Jesus quotes this passage, uh, I think, uh, in Daniel when the, he sends out the disciples and they come back and they had cast out demons and they're high five and they're like, did you see what we just did? That was amazing. And Jesus just has this crazy response where he says, hey, don't rejoice in that the spirits listen to your name. Rejoice that your name has been written in the book and that God remembers you. That's what's most important. In your successes, in your failures, in your trials, you are not forgotten. The reason this is important, Ralph Davis would say, is because no church-crushing, saint-smashing regime can remove the names written in indelible ink in God's book. Nothing will take that away. And so when God's people face the worst trouble, they will be known. Here's the third thing, is that when God's people face the worst, they will be glorified. Verses 2 and 3, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust, that means they've died, knowing the God of the universe, shall awake. And it says, Some, and the ones who know their God, will be brought to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then it goes on, and this is the rise and shine part. It says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and turn to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Friends, what Daniel is pointing to or what this vision is pointing to is is it's telling god's people hey take courage as you face this it says right there in that verse that that you will be delivered but we have to adjust our expectations that it's not saying you will be delivered from that situation in this life necessarily maybe you will but you know for some of us that deliverance will not come until jesus returns or until we are face to face with him after death For the many Christians who are martyred worldwide, this is the hope. It's not comfort. It's not removal of the pain. It's the fact that we will spend eternity with the God of the universe. The New Testament companion verse of this is from 1 Thessalonians. Paul's writing to a church who was just kind of wrestling with, hey, we're struggling, we're suffering. Um, Did Jesus return yet? He might have returned and we missed it and we're worried about those who have died and what's going to happen to them. So here's what Paul's response was. And this is a little lengthy, so hang in there. It says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who uh, do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Sleep means died, if you haven't caught that. It says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command and the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord and therefore encourage one another with these words. All right, so here's what's going on. God's people, they're getting squirrely. They're like, what's going to happen? Do we miss the Jesus boat? Like, what's going to happen to the people who died? And, And Paul is saying, take heart. Here's where our hope is. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, Your sins are forgiven and you've been joined with him in not only his death, but in his resurrection. And so when he returns, we are going to be with him. But not just us, those who have died before us. And and they're not just going to stay in the ground. In fact, they're going to rise first. And then we're going to rise with them and then we're going to meet Jesus in the air. When it says meet him in the air, the idea here is it's kind of like this ancient idea where a king returned from battle. And the people go out and they meet their victorious king 
and they bring him back into the city because Jesus will come back to earth and establish the new heavens and the new earth. Did you know you're going to be spending eternity here? Man, the day I figured out it wasn't like playing a harp on a cloud somewhere up there, I was a little bothered. I was like, that's all I ever heard is this cloudy harp thing. But you know, Scripture tells us that, yes, when we die, there's an intermediate state that we're in until Jesus returns. But when he returns, this is eternity for those who are in Jesus Christ with new heaven and new earth in its perfection. And so that's what's happening here in this picture, which leads me to give you a 90-second version of eschatology and end times views. At the end of this, you will be convinced of which one of the four positions you hold. I guarantee you. I do not guarantee you. There is no way that will happen. Do not write feverishly right now uh, as I start to type or as I start to talk and show you these slides. It will be online. Better yet, get an ESV study Bible. It has a great little walkthrough of the different end times views. But, but let me give you the two anchors of, of what end times views. Eschatology is the study of end, thing, end times uh, that, that Christians would believe. There's four views, and it's based on two things. One, our reading of the book of Revelation right? Some believe that it's mostly history with a little bit of future. Others believe that it's mostly future with a little bit of history. And then there's a mashup of everything in between, and right? And that's what's going to form some of these four views. The other thing is this idea of the millennium, this idea of Jesus will reign for a millennium. It's five relatively obscure verses in Revelation chapter 21 to 5. Uh, but that's what you're going to see when you see the word millennium up on the screen. For those of you who are totally lost, just hang in there. I'll be over in just a second, right? Okay. 90 seconds. Here we go. Here's the four views. Here's the first one. This would be called pre, classic premillennialism. All right. So there's a church age. Jesus returns. Instantly believers are raised. Meet him in the air. Come and establish the reign with Christ. Then there's the millennium. Then there's the seat of judgment, resurrection of unbelievers and judgment day, and then eternal state. All right. You good? Here it is. Classic premillennialism. Nailed it. Okay. Here's the second one. Postmillennialism. Church age. There's a millennium. Uh, then there's the judgment seat of Christ, every seat of Christ, everybody raises at the same time and faces judgment. Then there's an eternal state. You'll notice it gets more and more simpler as we go. All right. So that's post mill. Here's the last one. That's not the last one. That's the last one. Ah, mill. See, it got simpler. One little block disappeared, right? Most of you are like, that's simple. I'll take that one. Uh, This is where I land. I'm a simpleton. Um, uh, so there's the church age, which is really that revelation 20, then Christ, the judgment seat, resurrection, and then the eternal state. All right, I got to tell you one more, but let me pause here. In Reformed and Presbyterian churches and, and Reformed churches, really, these first three views are, are really the ones that are adhered to the most. There is a fourth, and this one is probably what's most popularized today, made most popular by the Left Behind series of books in Kirk Cameron. Great actor, right? Um, uh, here's, here, here it is. This is, um, uh, this is dispensational premillennialism. I got to keep it all straight. So it's very similar to classic, but there's the tribulation in the middle. There's this idea of the seven years and uh, rapture and what have you. So, you know, I'm just giving you the big rocks. Here's the most important four elements. So if you say, okay, Anthony, brass tacks, what is a biblical orthodox Christian view of the end times? Here it is. Simple, four points. It's the rule of eschatology. Uh, R is Christ is going to return. You got to believe Christ is going to return or it's not a Christian worldview. All right. Up, that means both the dead in Christ and those who don't know Jesus will rise from the dead. There is a resurrection of sorts. Then the L, there will be a last judgment seat of Christ. And then after that, there will be E, eternal realities. Those who have trusted Christ, uh, there will be eternity with him. And those who have not will spend eternity separated from him. And that's the idea of hell that you'll hear of in the Christian faith. And so that's 
really uh, the bottom line of the end times views. If you just get lost and you're like, I'm confused, there you go. If you just want to go down the rabbit hole of figuring out one of those other millennial views, that's great too. ESV Study Bible, great place to start. Okay, y'all get it? You're convinced? We're good? You know where we land? All right, there'll be a quiz after this. Um, So here's the last point I want to point out. That last verse there, verse 18, the whole point Paul brings this up uh, to the church in Thessalonica is this. He says, encourage one another with these words. The bottom line of all this end time stuff for a Christian is to continually remind one another that there is something far more for us for all of eternity. And if we are in Christ, it is being glorified and spending eternity with the lover of our souls. It's very similar to what is said to a church in turmoil in the book of Hebrews. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, this element of glorification, particularly in the West where we have great health care and the life expectancy is much longer than it was back here, is that we kind of lose touch for most of our lives with eternal realities. We get lost in comfort and we think we're never going to have to face it. But you know, Scripture presses that issue and says, no, you will. And if we have a view that we will spend eternity with Christ, it will encourage us as we go through suffering. And he calls us to gather together in this verse as a church to do what? To encourage one another towards that hope as we see the day drawing near. To grab each other after the service and say, brother, sister, persevere, because one day he will make it all right. You know, as this is my last Sunday before I head out on sabbatical, I just want to address one thing that's kind of snuck into our uh, view of the church and, and how we approach it. And it's, we really don't need to gather together. And I would just say, I think that's a lie that the enemy is sowing in pretty profoundly right now. We live in Netflix church age, where we can go to our favorite church in Georgia from the comfort of our own couch. And I would just argue that while I think that is a great accommodation, particularly when we had to shut down over the course of a pandemic, and I think there's a category in the Old Testament, by the way, of not gathering for worship for a season because of disease. Just go read the Old Testament law and when you have something like leprosy. At the same time, we can never give in to the lie that the church is not a gathered group of people who continually grab each other by the shoulders and say, persevere, who sing the songs. Did you hear the songs we just sang? We sang about our hope of glory and being with Jesus for all of eternity. We confessed our sins out loud and we heard the person who we might not like that much to our right say the same thing and say, we're under the same grace and we have the same hope. It changes us. And so while it's a good accommodation when we're sick, when we have long seasons where we can't attend church, let me just encourage you, continue to gather because our faith won't make it typically if we are not around other believers encouraging one another as the day draws near. Here's the fourth point. When God's people face the worst trouble, they will be guaranteed. In verse four, you see him say this weird thing. He's like, shut up the words, seal the book and the time of the end, and many will run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. He's not saying, Daniel, shut it up. I don't want you to read it anymore. That's not the point. He's saying, seal it because what does a seal do? It guarantees the safety of the contents until it gets to where it is and who sent it. 
And so he's saying, Daniel, seal this up for future suffering generations so that they can open it and so that they can study when they suffer. And when it says knowledge shall increase, he's saying there is something remarkable that happens when we study books like this in Scripture while we face suffering and it brings some sort of unique clarity and comfort to God's suffering people. Similar to what John says in Revelation 21. You know this, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Essentially, that's what this seal is saying, that God's word is trustworthy and true. 1201. All right, ready? Here's the last point. It'll be shorter than the first point. I'm like, I thought that was like four points, Gamage. I warned you beforehand. Here we go. Um, Verses 5 to 13 is this idea where he tells Daniel, go on to the end, essentially because your future is settled. Because your future is settled. Let me read this for you, starting in verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood on this bank of the stream and one on the other bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, uh, who was above the waters in the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end and all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end. uh, end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from that time, the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. All right, so here's what's essentially going on. It's a continuation of the vision. The vision is shifted to this river, a guy hanging out above the river. This is the same guy that shows up in chapter 10. And then there's a guy below, and he's basically calling out to the other guy and saying, How long? Will this suffering last? Which is, which is a great question, right? Isn't that what we feel when we face suffering? How long, right? And so that's the question that's being asked. And in verse 7, you see this answer. And the answer is, to put it most simply, is saying it will end. The suffering will end. There at the ver- end of verse 7, it said it will be for a time, times, and half a time. So here, time probably means a year. Times means two years. And half a time means a half a year. So that's three and a half years. For many, they're like, oh, that's the tribulation and end time stuff. For others, they're thinking it's metaphorical to simply make the point that the time will come to an end. And I think that's the point this guy's saying, where he says at the very end, the power of the holy, holy peoples, the, the smashing of them will come to an end and all things will be finished. And so, friends, the encouragement here is that God in his providence and sovereignty is saying, hey, whatever suffering you're going through, my people, it has a definitive end. Dave preached on this a couple of weeks ago. Now, we have problems here when it comes to this idea of God's sovereignty and allowing hard things to happen. And, and whether we know it or not, the, the realities of uh, modernism and then postmodernism and, and basically how all of those things work together to create the air we breathe and we don't even know it cause us to go, no, 
sovereignty is evil and it's wrong and it's like the Truman Show when we're under the thumb of someone and we can't be our true selves. If you just let us be autonomous, then we would be better. If we just live under this idea of God's sovereignty, then we're just puppets. And I don't know how these things, two things work together, but even in this chapter, we see that, that there's accountability and we're not just puppets because God said, hey, how you live in this world actually matters. It actually determines eternal destinies. Again, how those things come together with God's sovereignty, that's a book that I haven't yet written yet and probably never will. I've read a few and they're about this thick. So I can give you that book if you want to wrestle with it. But, but here's the other thing is as we read through the book of Daniel, the problem isn't actually God's sovereignty. The problem became those who decided, I'm going to live autonomously apart from God. God's people said that. That's why they're in captivity. In these two chapters that we just read, we have this king, this antichrist, who it says will do as he pleases and exalt himself above every other God. And it's that very activity that brought pain and suffering, not God himself. If we just believe that this is just hopelessly spinning in the world, we will end in hopelessness. There's no sense to it. But the book of Daniel has held before us, hey, God's sovereignty actually shows us that we don't know what it is, but because God is good, because he loved us, in the New Testament we have Christ's suffering to prove it, that it will work for the benefit of his people. I don't mean to heal wounds lightly with that, but that is just a theological reality that Daniel holds before us, and it's meant to comfort us and give us hope in the midst of despair and and pain. I'm going to skip down to this one. There's this crazy number thing. Did you see the crazy number thing? You're like, what does this mean? Uh, it says there's going to be an abomination, or it's going to, it says there's a regular burnt offering that's taken away, an abomination that makes desolate is set up. What it's basically saying is, is, is there's going to be someone who says, you can't worship your God anymore. It does away with true worship. That's the getting rid of the sacrifices. And then it sets up an abomination saying, now you must worship this thing, this ideology, or this person. That's the abomination aspect that he's talking about. And then he gives these numbers, 1290 and 1335. All right. In short, Jesus references this in Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand that, uh, let then, uh, sorry, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right, so this is probably at least one thing and probably a second. The, the one thing that it is, is Jesus is probably talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 at the hands of the Romans. In fact, this is historically documented very well. But then in Revelation 11 and 12, it mentions these very two numbers, which is crazy. I don't have time going into it, but, but it's also pointing to suffering that will happen to the church in the end of days. And, and so... What's less important is exactly what these numbers mean. 1290 is three and a half years, so it's going back to that time times half time. But what I think he's driving at is that second number that's most important, 1335. It's greater than the 1290. It says, blessed are those who, who make it to the 1335 days. And what he's saying is, is there will be people who follow me in the church that will survive this persecution. That even if it appears that the church is completely snuffed out, even if it appears that, that God's people in the Old Testament are completely snuffed out, it, it says here that Yahweh has a people that will make it in spite of everything thrown at them. And in the New Testament, it says, hey, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Friends, God has a 1335 people. 
We will make it. The time will draw to an end. Here's the end. Ready? Here's the first, the the last verse again. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Let me explain uh, this a little bit. He's basically saying, Daniel, in light of all this, in light of when you face this, you'll be glorified, you'll be known, persevere. Because in the end, you will stand and you will be mine. You know, earlier this week, um, I kind of created a little bit of my own mess. And I was on the phone with someone who was speaking the truth in love, but the truth hurt. <laughs> and I went over to my whiteboard and I just said, okay, here's, here's what I need to address. Here's where I kind of failed in this situation. So I, I start writing it up on the whiteboard. And it's really, it's even more painful when you see it in print, right? You're just kind of like, ow, yeah, I'm going to put that up there. And, and so I go home. That was Wednesday and then I sleep on it. I don't sleep really well. I get up on Thursday. I go into the office. I'm trying to work on my sermon. And I'm just like, the whiteboard is right there saying, yeah, here's how you blew it, sucker. You know, and I'm just looking at it going, I can't focus on my sermon. And then my eyes dropped to the right-hand corner. And in that right-hand corner, uh, there was a note from my daughter. Now, one of the things that my daughter does is she'll kind of sneak into my office every now and then. And when she notices I've erased the last note that she's written, she'll write another note there on the very bottom. And last Sunday, she noticed I did not have said note up. And so uh, she wrote her own. And here's what she wrote. She said, only two more weeks. She meant till sabbatical. You've got this. Love you. And you know, it's funny. I don't, don't everybody look at her right now. Just right here. Eyes on me. <laughs> Eyes on me. Being a pastor's kid is hard. It's hard. So just, just hang in there. All right. But, but, but here's what happened. I looked down at that note and I literally, I'm standing in my office. I'm just crying. I just start crying. And it was weird. It was like the Lord just pulled that right off the whiteboard and, and reminded me of these three realities. What she said to me in my moment of just struggle and suffering that I've created, she reminded me that that, that suffering was time bound, that there was a time bound moment of relief that was coming. The second thing was, dad, you got the resources to make it. You've got this. The third is that I'm loved. My daughter told me she loved me. That's a big deal. Here's the fourth thing. She wrote that on the bottom corner of my whiteboard before I wrote the hard stuff on top of it. Isn't that crazy? How sweet of the Lord. Daniel is the Old Testament handbook given to a suffering people of God. And do you know what it's giving us? A time-bound moment of relief. It will end. It reminds us that, that we've got this. Why? Because we have help. We will be glorified. And it's a guarantee. And you know what else it reminds us? That we're known and loved and it's written in the book. And you know what's the craziest thing about the book of Daniel? Is that it was written before you and I ever faced the first moment of trouble in our lives. But God knew it, and he put it there to love us and encourage us to keep going. And so church, the overwhelming message of Daniel points us to a certain end of suffering. Jesus undoes it. He makes all things new. It reminds us that God is in control of history, and because of Jesus, our future is settled. So let's keep going. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we are weak 
apart from you. We will fail in our faith if you do not hold us up. Lord, we will remain misguided to think that we've got this on our own and that we don't need any outside help. And so, Lord, I beg you to remind us of this often, of the certain future that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us who have never laid hold of that, cause us to do so. For those of us who have and have forgotten that, remind us today. And Lord, I pray that you would call us to keep going, to keep going in the midst of suffering, in the midst of death and sin, and in the midst of persecution, so that we may honor you and know you for all eternity. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.